Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, turn in a Bible to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 982. As we begin to wind down our study of this letter, we've come to the place where Paul usually gives a series of rapid-fire last instructions, final instructions, and they're often not necessarily grouped together. Sometimes they are. Sometimes it's just one, two, three, four, all one after another. So sometimes it's challenging to organize them, but this morning we are going to begin looking at Paul's final instructions to the Philippians as he calls us to demonstrate a consistent joy and reasonableness in our lives. And so we are in Philippians chapter 4, and we are going to begin by reading verse 4. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So last week we saw that Paul specifically addressed a couple of the members of the church at Philippi and called on them to resolve a disagreement. But as we pick back up here in verse 4 this morning, Paul turns his attention back to the church as a whole. And as he begins his, his final instructions, uh, he starts by calling the Philippians to joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, you may remember that Paul already called the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always back in verse 1 of chapter 3. But here he comes back around and commands them again to rejoice in the Lord. And then he even re-emphasizes it by saying it again. He says, again, I will say rejoice. So we see that Paul takes joy seriously. In fact, throughout the course of this letter, the word joy has been found in some form 16 different times, which for any of you statistic gurus out there comes out to once every six and a half verses. It's a very consistent theme in this letter. So Paul expects Christians to have joy in their lives. The presence of joy is one of the marks of a Christian. Joy is something that, that Paul expects to distinguish Christians from the rest of the world around them. Now, if we take this command seriously, then we need to ask, does Paul really expect us to be able to do this always? He says rejoice always. Does he mean every time and every place under every circumstance? I mean, can we really do this while we're in the midst of a global pandemic? Can we really do this with, with so much chaos happening around our world? Can our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan do this right now with the threats of the Taliban looming over their heads? Well, the fact that Paul emphasizes it so much would indicate that he does expect us to rejoice always. He wouldn't command us to do something that we aren't capable of doing. And I think the key is to understand what he's not saying and what he is saying. So first of all, we should understand that Paul is not saying that we should always be happy. 
Paul is not saying that we should always be happy. The inescapable truth is that all of us come into situations or even seasons of life where we're hurting or we're angry or we're confused about what's happening in our lives and in the world around us. And Paul is not expecting us to to live in denial of that. He's not calling us to, to live in some alternate reality where we aren't affected by the difficulties of life. And so you'll often hear the distinction made between happiness and joy, that happiness is a good feeling, whereas joy is a a settled state of well-being. Happiness is circumstantial in nature. I am happy about this, and I am not happy about that. Whereas joy is, is transcendent. It is not affected by the circumstances of our lives. And so you can be sad in a particular moment, and yet still have joy. And on the flip side, you can feel on top of the world in a particular moment, and yet not have joy. And as usual, we see Paul practicing what he preaches. We remember that he's writing this as he sits in prison in Rome, waiting to stand trial before the emperor. We remember from our study through Acts that in his initial visit to Philippi, Paul was falsely accused, and he was beaten, and he was thrown into jail. But then what was he doing that evening? He was singing praises to God in jail and worshiping the Lord through song. In his second letter to the Corinthians, as, as he details the hardships that he's experienced through his ministry, Paul characterizes himself as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. So Paul was not immune to the difficulties of life, but he always had joy, and he expects the Philippians and us by extension to also. And so what's what's the secret? How can we always have joy? Well, again, the key is to understand what Paul is saying here when he tells us that the source of our joy is in the Lord. And so if you remember back to chapter 3, we saw that to rejoice in the Lord means that our sense of confidence and hope and satisfaction in life is rooted in Jesus and what He has done for us to save us from our sin through His life, death, and resurrection. Right? Our circumstances will change, people will let us down, but God's love for His people in the gospel is unwavering. It is a reality that we can rest in no matter what. If we are in Christ, then we know what God has done for us in the past through Jesus. We know what He has promised to do for us in the future and returning one day to make all things new. And we also know what He has told us He is doing right now in working out His perfect plan across the span of human history. God is writing the story of human history, and every one of us has a subplot in that story. And certainly there are times where the Lord leads us into circumstances that we would rather Him not. But at the end of the day, if we are in Christ, we know that God loves us, that we can trust Him, and that everything is going to work out well in the end. And that certainty enables us to have joy in the midst of the ups and downs of life. The gospel should be the controlling reality of our lives that keeps everything else going on around us in proper perspective. 
One of the very best examples of this that I know of is the, the life of Horatio Spafford, who wrote the, the well-known hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Most all of us are probably familiar with the song, but perhaps you're not familiar with the story behind it. In 1871, Spafford lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. And then later on that year, he lost the vast majority of his wealth when his properties were destroyed in the great Chicago fire. And in the aftermath of of dealing with all that, he decided that his, his family needed time to recuperate, and so he planned a vacation to England. And so he loaded up his wife and his four daughters on a ship and and sent them on ahead of him, and he planned to catch up with them in a week or two after taking care of some final business in Chicago. But the ship that was carrying his wife and daughters was hit by another ship, and it sank into the ocean, and his four daughters drowned, and his wife was the only one who survived. She was rescued and taken on to England, and upon hearing the news, of course, Spafford left immediately to go and be with her. And after everything else he had been through that year, as his ship came to the place where his four daughters had drowned at sea, he sat down and wrote, It is well with my soul. That's the the backstory. And I don't know how many times I've sung the song, but it didn't dawn on me until a few years ago what Spafford was doing with the song. The song is actually about rejoicing in the Lord. So in verse 1, I'm not trying to preach the song, but it's just such a great example of what Paul is calling us to here. In verse 1, the point is that no matter what happens in life, it is well with his soul. He can rejoice, in other words. So on the one hand, when everything in life is good, he says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, Or when everything in life feels like it's falling apart, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Either way, he says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So whether life is good or bad, he can rejoice. And then as we go into verse 2, and again, having the backstory of the fact that not everything in life was good for him. In fact, life was not good at all for him at this particular point. What does he do? How does he console himself in this season of life? And how does he find reason to rejoice? Well, he goes to the cross, and he remembers what Jesus did for him there. And so in verse 2, he says, When life is falling apart, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate, and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Right, when life got hard, he went to the cross. And then in verse 3, he does it again. He says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And then finally, verse 4 ties it all together, because what Jesus has done in the past guarantees the future for God's people, where again, he has promised to return and make all things right again. And so in verse 4, Spafford looks forward and he says, And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, because of this, because of this truth, it is well with my soul." 
And so what Jesus has done for us in the past secures the future. And so we can always have joy in life. This man, humanly speaking, had lost just about everything that was meaningful to him. But in the midst of that, he could honestly say, it is well with my soul. And I would submit to you this morning that only someone who knows and trusts in Jesus Christ can have that kind of joy, a joy that is present no matter what. Our life circumstances are constantly changing, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But the gospel gives us an objective, unchanging reality that we can anchor our hearts with. It gives us a framework for looking at the big picture, and a, a reminder that whatever ups and downs we have in the story of our lives, in Christ, there will be a happy ending. And so we can always rejoice as we look forward to that hope. It's, it's kind of like a life jacket when everything else in life would threaten to pull us under and we've lost our strength to swim anymore. The gospel is a, is a life jacket that will keep our heads above the waters of life. And having called us to rejoice in the Lord always, Paul turns to the next command in verse 5. And so we'll pick up again in verse 5. He writes, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so moving along into verse 5, Paul instructs the Philippians to let their reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, the word reasonableness is is possibly better translated as gentleness, as many uh, other English translations uh, do. But this is a word that refers to a forbearing attitude. Uh, This is a disposition that doesn't seek revenge when it's wronged. Uh, It is patient when offended. It's not primarily driven by emotions. And so there's a nuance of gentleness and reasonableness to it. And while Paul certainly intended for the Philippians to be gentle or reasonable with one another as a church family, his reference to everyone means that this is meant to extend to everybody, all people, everywhere. Now, gentleness and reasonableness are not highly valued in our society today. Gentleness is weak. If you're gentle towards other people, then you invite them to disrespect you. And in social circles, disrespecting someone is, is a capital offense. Right? Not, not only is it, is it weak, but it's also unproductive. If you really want something in life, then you're not going to get it by being gentle. You need to go out and make it happen. And if something or someone gets in your way, then you just need to run them over. And, and certainly, any sense of reasonableness is increasingly vanishing in our society. More and more, we make decisions like real decisions based on what people feel about something rather than thinking about what is right or wrong or what's most beneficial for society as a whole. But while modern society may not have much use for this quality, it's very important to Paul. Of course, the greatest example of this is Jesus, who after suffering the the most outrageous injustices of all time and being wrongfully arrested, mocked, beaten and then crucified, could still look out on this angry mob and sincerely say, Father, forgive them. And here Paul is calling us to follow Jesus in the attitude that we have with other people, and perhaps especially 
those who oppose us. It's generally easy to be gentle with people who are nice to us. But what about people who aren't nice to us? What about people who are obnoxious? Or what about people who are, who are actually trying to harm us in some way? Gentleness, even towards those who oppose us, is a characteristic that Paul expects of Christians just as much as joy. And one of the things that has stymied opponents of Christianity and persecutors throughout the centuries, and even led many of them to faith, is the ability of Christians to endure threats and insults and the worst torture that they could throw at them while still maintaining a loving, forgiving, gentle spirit towards them. I pray that will be the case for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Now, I think there's a link between verses 4 and 5 here that, that joins them together conceptually, and, and that joy and gentleness go together. And this is anecdotal, but, but I find that when I catch myself not being gentle or reasonable, as the case may be, I inevitably find that I've lost my sense of joy. Right? If, if we're not being gentle or reasonable, we're probably not particularly joyful either. Which is to say that, that any time uh, we lose our sense of joy, we are probably on our way to not being gentle or reasonable. And so uh, we, are, we are seeking in those moments satisfaction or joy in something other than who God is and what he has done for us. And being gentle or reasonable really comes down to, if we want the, the key to how we do this, trusting that God is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do. And that brings us to the end of verse 5. If you look at the end of verse 5, Paul reassures the Philippians that the Lord is at hand, or he is near, or he is close. And, and this word that we translate at hand or near can be understand, it could be understood in one of two different ways. Right? Paul could be saying that the Lord is near to his people in a spatial sense meaning that, that uh, he is ready and able to provide for his people's needs. Or he could be saying that the Lord is near in a temporal sense, meaning that the Lord's return, his second coming, well, he will make all things right, is near. And both possibilities make sense in the context. Uh, both possibilities are true, and we, we have that reality spelled out in other places in the New Testament. And some scholars have even suggested that, that Paul is using the ambiguity here in order to communicate both ideas. Right? The Lord is near to his people to provide for their needs. And his return is imminent, where he will come back to save his people and judge his enemies. And because of that, the Philippians should have a disposition of gentleness, reasonableness, toward everyone. You know, the Philippian church was born in a culture that was already hostile towards the Christian faith. But the American church is deeply rooted in a culture that is now moving away from it. And I think in some ways that makes this more challenging for us. It's harder to have had something and then see it leave or go away than to have not had it at all. So how do we, we, we do this? We know on the one hand that we're called to stand firm in our faith. We've seen that twice in Philippians, for that matter. But how do we do that while maintaining sincere gentleness towards those who would oppose us? That's the question. I think the uncomfortable truth, 
if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, is that we're really just not very good at it. This is not something, uh, again, that is prized in our society, and so it's not something that comes naturally to us. But I want to offer us two things that I think we should be careful about as Christians, seeking to be gently and reasonably faithful in our culture. And so first of all, for us to have gentleness and reasonableness towards those who oppose us, I think we need to spend as much time praying for them as we do complaining about them. It is so easy to dehumanize someone who is making life difficult in some way. It's so easy to, to, to see them and disagree with them and to, to feel justified in treating them badly in return. But we all know how Jesus commanded us to treat our enemies by praying for them and even looking for opportunities to serve them. And so uh, the next time you feel that emotional outburst coming on about whatever it is that has your blood boiling, I would recommend that you consider praying about it instead. For one thing, prayer is far more effective than complaining to begin with, and you'll be a gentler person for it. Secondly, for us to be gentle, reasonable people toward those who oppose us, I think we need to watch what we post on social media. And we have this conversation from time to time, but it hasn't changed, so I'm going to keep talking about it. But social media is a platform for communication that most people simply are not mature enough to utilize. People will, will say things online that they would never say in person, which is not gentle. And they will post things without having any idea of whether or not what they're posting is true, which is not reasonable. Right? We, we so often fail probably more than anywhere else in how we engage in social media. And while I've rarely seen people change their mind about an issue based on something they saw on Facebook, I've seen hundreds of people get fighting mad. And I have seen relationships get ruined. And I have seen non-believers be turned off from the gospel because of the online activity of believers. And of course, there's a tension. As Americans, we have a right to complain and, and to... Uh, cause a, a fuss if we want to, but as Christians, we're called to gentleness and reasonableness. And so while you may think that you've got an amazing meme with a killer one-liner, as your pastor, I would simply ask you to think twice before you post it next time. Church, the Lord is near, and He will provide for His people. The Lord is near, and he is coming back soon to vindicate his people and execute perfect judgment. And because of those truths, we can and we should have a gentle and reasonable disposition towards people no matter what. And so in our passage this morning, Paul begins his final instructions to the Philippians by calling them, and, and again us by extension, to having a consistent joy and, and gentleness, reasonableness toward all people. And it's possible that we've never needed these characteristics more. Right? The, the world desperately needs the church to be characterized by these qualities as we hold out the hope of the gospel and make disciples of Jesus. And so this morning, let's commit ourselves to pursuing these qualities. And let's ask the Lord to bless our lives individually 
and as a church to work them into our lives. Let's pray together.